Thanks for reading that, Austin. Um, hey, everyone. My name's Ming. I'm one of the student ministers here at Auckland EV. So, yeah, I'm a, still learning a lot, but I'm looking forward to question time a little later. So look forward to that. It's still happening again. The number on the screen should come up. Um, the number should pop up on the screen if you have any questions. But I've spent a great deal of time digging into this passage, and I'm looking forward to unpacking it all with you today. So let's pray together now, asking God to process what we just heard. Heavenly Father, as we gather together today to, to hear your word, help us to give you all the attention. Help us to see you from your word today and see how great you are. We're here today to listen to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Walkmans, brick Nokia phones, bitcoins, fidget spinners, the 2010 Miami Heat, the ice bucket challenge, the cinnamon challenge, the Harlem shake, Pokemon Go, dabbing. The thing that these all have in common are bandwagoners. The bandwagon effect is where a trend has become so popular, so successful, that everyone wants to be in on it. We all do it. We see a huge crowd. We can't help but wonder, why is there a big crowd over there? I should go probably join that big crowd. We see people using a hashtag on Facebook or Instagram. We decide we should use that very same hashtag. We see a big line outside this new shop. We think to ourselves, Hmm, I should probably check out that new shop. It's a phenomenon that's so powerful, it's now even in the dictionary. You Google the word bandwagon, and you find studies dedicated to the bandwagon effect. It's even become the name of a common political strategy. And much like bandwagoning, our passage today starts off with a big crowd, thousands of people, and they get to see this amazing sign, this, this amazing miracle that seems to provide free food. And we all know as students that free food is the way to attract masses of people. <laughs> and what happens is, all these people, thousands of people, end up wanting to join the Jesus bandwagon. They want to make Jesus their king. It's like the dream scenario for any church. There's this massive hype train. Anyone and everyone thinks Christianity is the coolest thing. But by the end of the passage, the very next day, many people turned away from Jesus and no longer followed him. They were no longer interested in him. Within the space of two days, the Jesus hype reached its peak, and then it was over. That's what we're dealing with today. Am I just part of the Jesus bandwagon, or am I locked in? For the highs and lows, do I really belong here? Now, I've broken up this sermon into a few traps, a few traps that attract the typical bandwagoner, and this is what we see happen to the crowd in our passage. And the first one to look out for is, is thinking that Jesus is simply a miracle worker. That, that when we read our Bibles, especially passages like this, the Bible is, is just some hocus-pocus book that has these crazy events that, that are simply impossible. For some people, they, they think to themselves, these miracles, they're here to attract desperate people, people who need a little hope. And, but I know what's really going on. This isn't going to fool me. But for others, we read passages like this, and we get drawn to the fact that a miracle happened. That miracles are the star of the show, and that's what's drawing us to Jesus. But what's fascinating is, John never actually calls these miraculous acts miracles. In fact, John seems to deliberately not use the word miracle, instead use the word sign. And over the past few weeks, there was the sign of turning water into wine. There was the sign of healing the official son, the sign of healing the sick. 
And now, today, here's the sign of bread multiplied in the wilderness, where we see Jesus take a small boy's lunch to feed and satisfy the hunger of thousands of people. But as we read John's account of Jesus' life, we find that he's, he's not interested in simply just recording the fact that Jesus did miraculous things. He records these signs and calls them signs because signs point to something, point to something much bigger. So the real question we need to be asking is, what is the sign pointing to? Now, I'm not sure if you noticed, but, but Jesus has been quite deliberately been replaying Old Testament history, replaying familiar events for the Israelites, for people who would have been in this massive crowd. So in this case, think of, think of Exodus from Egypt. Do we all remember that story? Where the Israelites were out in the wilderness, traveling to the promised land under Moses. Did we spot all the little clues along the way in our passage? Have a look with me. John 6, verse 4. Now, the Passover, a Jewish festival, was near. This isn't a random fun fact John decided to slot into this passage. He's telling us the broader context of our chapter. Do you remember the Passover? The meal that Jews had to eat in order to survive way back in Exodus chapter 12? Then check out John 6, verse 12. When they were full, he told his disciples, collect the leftovers so that nothing is wasted. So they collected them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces from the five barley loaves. This definitely sounds a lot like Exodus chapter 16. 12 baskets, 12 tribes of Israel gathering manna, gathering bread from heaven. And let's not forget, back in that very same chapter, God commanded that none of this bread from heaven was to be wasted. John 6 verse 14, when, when the people saw the sign he had done, they said, this truly is the prophet, not a prophet, the prophet who was to come into the world. These people saw Jesus, they saw the sign, and they identified Jesus as the prophet, the replacement prophet Moses had promised way back in Deuteronomy 18. And, and while we might not have noticed some of these smaller clues, when we think about Exodus, we can't forget about a miraculous crossing of the sea, can we? Just as the Israelites safely crossed the sea away from Egypt in Exodus chapter 14, Jesus does the exact same thing John records in this passage. Now, just in case there are some of us here who might be thinking, that's Ming's interpretation of the passage. He's just, he's just overthinking and, and over-spiritualizing the text. John tells us himself that these parallels were so obvious, even the crowd realized what was going on. They say themselves in John 6, verse 31, Our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness. Just as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. What John wants his readers, wants us to focus on, is not simply some random miracle, but he wants us to see the sign and what the sign is pointing to. I don't want to see any of us make the mistake of reading our Bibles and and seeing it as just some history book with, with random miracles sprinkled throughout. That's not why it was written. There's a reason these things happened, There's a purpose these things were included. We can't just read our Bibles and take things as we want or or what we think. When we read John's Gospel, or even the Bible in general, I find asking yourself these questions really helpful. What new information is this telling me about Jesus? What is Jesus revealing about God's plans here? How does what Jesus is doing relate to biblical history? Because Jesus has been deliberately replaying Old Testament history because, because he sees himself as the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And while the typical bandwagoner might just be attracted to the fact 
of the miracle, amazing feats, miraculous signs. The Christian sees it as a sign and sees that the sign points to something, or in this case, someone much bigger. But the sad reality is, sad reality, not everyone rightly sees what the sign points to. In fact, they might even think the sign simply points to a way to make life better. Money in the hand, material prosperity, a more comfortable life. Check it out, John 6, verse 15. Therefore, when Jesus realized they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again but to the mountains by himself. Back in those days, the average first century worker spent almost all their daily income on food, on feeding the family. So back then, if you found someone that could provide you with all the food you need that day, you'd have effectively doubled your income. Kind of like working on a time and a half day, but only better. So here, we actually see the crowd thinking, this man can do this for thousands of people. Well, he could do this for the whole nation, couldn't he? That's the kind of ruler we want. We'll keep him. Let's make him the king. But that meant they couldn't understand what Jesus came to do, what Jesus' sign was pointing to. And we see Jesus call this thinking out in John 6, verse 26. Truly I tell you, you were looking for me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your loaves and were filled. It is possible to get so close to Jesus to be hearing his very own words in the flesh, to see a miracle performed by him and literally eat the miracle, but still not get it, to still not understand what Jesus is doing, still not see the significance, still not realize the key word here, sign, significant. And what's more, we still see this today. It's possible to be so interested in Jesus, to, to chase after Jesus enthusiastically and passionately, but for all the wrong reasons. Not all the passion and desire for spirituality is good. Not all of it is rightly motivated. Because these people were, were so keen for Jesus, they, they wanted to make him their king. But their intentions were all wrong. So we need to ask ourselves, why are we coming to Jesus? Is it because I think he'll double my income? He'll make my life better? Or is it because we see the sign and what the sign is pointing to? John 6, verse 27. Don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that lasts for eternal life. On the scale of eternity, what is double my income? It's so petty, it's so weak. But it is how we think, isn't it? I often find myself contemplating, how is this going to benefit me? How is this going to bring me more comfort? In this crowd, we're, we're so focused on their stomachs, they forgot all about eternity. All they hear Jesus say here is, is word, is work. Don't work for that food, Jesus says. So they ask in verse 28, okay then, whatever work we have to do, we'll do it. This crowd believed in a works-based relationship with God. And they believed if they worked hard enough for God, it'd bring them the good life. And for Christians, our faith can get so twisted and distorted into, into some kind of works-based religion. But this isn't what Jesus teaches. Have a look, John 6, verse 29. Jesus replied, This is the work of God, 
that you believe in the one he has sent. The only work God requires from us is to trust, to believe in the one he has sent. To stop trusting ourselves and our ways, but to trust in Jesus. We don't enter into some kind of employee-employer relationship with God where, where you do your bit of work and then he pays you. In fact, we enter a relationship with God where, where he does all the work, and all we need to do is accept it. That's what grace is. That's why we need to trust in God, trust that he will provide. We receive by faith, we are given things by grace. There's no room to say, I deserve this, or, or I worked for this. What person in the crowd that day could have said, you know what, I earned this bread for us, and ended up providing that much bread. Don't fall into the common trap of thinking you can pay your way to heaven, that your works will bring you the prosperity you need, because God's, the work of God is to simply trust in Jesus. But it didn't end there for the crowd. They ask in John 6 verse 30, if you're going to talk about trusting in you, believing in you, why should we? What miraculous sign will you do? What, what piece of evidence are you going to show us, they ask? John 6 verse 31, we'll give you a hint, Jesus. Our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, just as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. You did it for us yesterday, Jesus. Do it again today. We'll trust you if you keep giving us free bread. What's going on here when you're struggling to trust in God? Because often when we look a little deeper, we find that we're simply after our own agenda, pursuing what we want or, or what we think will make life a little easier. And for the crowd, they've gone back to their own agenda, and in their blindness, all they see Jesus as is, is some bread vending machine. What is it for us? For us here in New Zealand, I often find that, that because of our affluence, unlike the first century, our problem actually seems to be the loss of potential prosperity, the loss of comfort that might come from trusting in God. In fact, we think we have it so good already that coming to Jesus is actually a downgrade. We see the bread that Jesus is offering, and we think, man, that's, that's $1 home brand bread. I can easily afford Vogels. We think to ourselves, why do I need to wait for marriage to have sex when I can just have it now? Why, why do I go to church on Sunday when I can spend Sunday working for some extra cash? Everyone else thinks Christianity is foolish. I don't want to get rejected by others. Not for me. Reading the Bible, waste of time. Doesn't, doesn't help me get that A+. But what you're really saying here is that you know better than God. We're so easily blinded by our own goals and agendas, but we need to ask what am I really after? What am I focusing on that's stopping me from trusting in God? Sometimes, what ends up cost causing our blindness can be a wrong view of God, an incorrect view of who Jesus is. And so Jesus goes on and looks to correct some of the crowd's misconceptions. Have a look, John 6, verse 30, 32, 32. Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. Jesus firstly says, you're focusing too much on Moses. It isn't Moses who has given you the bread from heaven. The crucial provider here is God. God's the one who provides. But more importantly, and this is the next point in your outlines if you're following along, Jesus says you're focusing on the wrong bread. Your your, your goal is, the goal that you're focusing on is all wrong. The true bread from heaven is not simply food, not simply food for the stomach. 
See, the crowd were focusing on the manna from heaven way back in Exodus, this, this kind of snowflakey stuff. But what they didn't realize was that this, this bread merely pointed to a more important bread true, bread, true bread from heaven that is not simply food. John 6, verse 49, it tells us that all those who ate manna back then in Exodus, they died. It wasn't the final manna. It wasn't the true bread from heaven. It was just provisional. So have a look, John 6, verse 33. For the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. What we find is people who have this bread, they don't die. And this verse tells us that this bread is not an it, it's not a thing, but it's a who. So in other words, Jesus is claiming to be the one who is the true bread from heaven. Jesus is claiming he has come down so that people no longer have to die. See, Jesus is way over here teaching and talking about eternity, but the crowd, they're back here bumbling around in their blindness, still thinking that Jesus is on about getting a feed. They say in verse 34, give us this bread always. To them, this all just sounds like magical bread, bread that miraculously grows back and you can keep ripping parts off. But there's no mistaking what Jesus is on about here. He spells it out for them in John 6, verse 35. I am the bread of life, Jesus told them. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry, and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. Look out for these I am statements in John. Because these I am statements bring clarity to what the signs in John are pointing to. See, you, you don't normally talk about believing in bread, having faith in bread, do you? But Jesus uses this bread metaphor because he wants to teach something quite profound. See, back then in first century Israel, bread was essential for life. It's not like that for us. Bread's just one of many options. We've got lots of different kinds of bread. We've got whole grain, white, brown bread. We've even got potatoes. Asians brought over rice and noodles. We can even have a no-bread diet, a no-carb diet if we want. But for people back then in the first century, you take away bread, people don't eat. They starve to death. It was an essential part of their diet. It was an essential for life. And for Jesus to say he is the bread of life is him saying he is an essential for life. Without Jesus, you die. Without Jesus, you don't have the most basic building block to sustain life. If you want to have life and truly stay alive, you must have Jesus. Now, this doesn't mean you literally eat Jesus. It's just a metaphor, but more on this later. As Jesus goes on, making it explicitly clear he's, he's his bread from heaven, the crowd begins to complain and grumble. Kind of reminds you of the grumbling you see in Exodus. Have a look, John 6, verse 42. They were saying, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I've come down from heaven? The crowd, they're not troubled at all by the bread metaphor. Not quite sure if they get it, but what offends them is the fact that Jesus says, I am the bread from heaven. They don't mind the miracles. They don't mind the interesting metaphor. But this coming down from heaven business, it sounds like Jesus is puffing himself up a bit, isn't it? Standing over us, claiming authority to speak into our life. They don't like that. We don't like that. Many people would be happy if Jesus would just provide us with blessings, favors, miracles, free bread. If all he did was give us what we want. 
but to call him Lord, to call him Master, to say he is my King? It's a bit much, isn't it? But the crowd, but what the crowd didn't realize was Jesus was on about something bigger than simply food. See, when we read the language of John 6, verse 51 to 59, he uses very strong language, doesn't he? Eat my flesh and drink my blood. Check it out, John 6, verse 54 to 56. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I'll raise him up on the last day because my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Sounds pretty cannibalistic, doesn't it? Makes us wonder if, if Jesus is taking this whole bread metaphor a little too far now. Are we meant to literally eat Jesus? Because that's what he sounds like he's saying, isn't it? And all throughout church history, throughout church history, many people have wrestled with this passage and read this into the Lord's Supper. But I think it's a bit of a mistake to do that. Because at this point in Jesus' life, there is no Lord's Supper. It's a bit hard for the crowd to hear these words, eat my flesh and drink my blood, and go, oh, Jesus is talking about the Lord's Supper. So the question is, what is Jesus getting at here? What does Jesus mean when he says, eat my flesh and drink my blood? Well, think of it like this. What a prop. Oh, it's falling apart. This... This is a hamburger. (laughs) And I can eat this hamburger because everything in this hamburger is dead. Now, if I I look at this hamburger, I'm I'm seeing a a dead cow, some dead lettuce, some dead onions, some dead tomatoes, there's some dead gherkins, there's even some dead wheat. Everything edible in this burger is dead. In fact, everything in this burger died for me. And either it dies and I live, or it, die, or it lives and I die. Well, not necessarily this hamburger, but, <laughs> but the principle's there. Either this living stuff dies so we can eat it and live, or it lives and we end up dying. And all throughout this chapter, we've seen parallels of Exodus in the Old Testament, And remember, at the start of the chapter, John 6, verse 4, the Passover was near. During the Passover, there was this lamb that had to be sacrificed. Its blood painted on the frames of the door. But not just that. They had to eat that lamb's flesh. They had to eat all of it. Not only was this Passover a lamb a symbol of sacrificial death, death, its blood poured out, but they actually had to eat it. And when Jesus says, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood... It's just a powerful way of saying, either I die and you live, or I live and you die. Those are the only two choices we have. This is as foundational as choosing to eat to stay alive or starving yourself to death. We can either choose to accept Jesus' gift of death for you, or we can reject it. This is the difference between life and death. Now, Despite the strong language and the clarity Jesus is speaking in, the crowds still haven't quite grasped what Jesus is on about because ultimately they don't understand the Father's will, and nor can they. Let me show you what I mean. John 6, verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. 
No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And again, this very same idea is repeated in John 6, verse 65, towards the end. He said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me, can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. What Jesus is saying here is, it's easy to understand, but it's hard to swallow. He's saying, we're so blind, so focused on our own agendas, on filling our stomachs and bringing happiness to our hearts, that when we're left on our own, we'd starve ourselves to death and miss the life that he's offered. And the only way to break through that blindness is divine help, help from God, grace from God. Now, I know this is going to raise a a heap of questions and, and perhaps emotions for a lot of us, and so it should. But thankfully, this passage offers some insight into what this actually looks like and what this means for us. So the first question I want to answer is, how does God draw people to himself? How does he enable people to see, see the sun? You might be wondering, how are my friends? How are they going to become Christian? Can I even do anything about it? You're praying to them, praying, to, praying for them. Dear God, rescue my friend, draw my friend to you, please save them. And by no means is prayer not valuable. It is ultimately God who is working in people's hearts after all. But this passage actually tells us how God draws people to himself in practice. Check it out, John 6, verse 45. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has listened to and learned from the Father comes to me. God draws people to himself by teaching. It's not like forcing himself on them like some crazed, infatuated lover. It's actually more like, like, like the wooing of a lover, winning people over, showing people who he is and how great he is. It's done by teaching, by convincing, by helping them to understand. Do we see that? Everyone who has heard the Father and learned, actually listened, comes to Jesus. So for us, how are our friends going to come to Jesus? We teach them the gospel. We teach them about Jesus. That's how God draws people to himself. What do we wait for? Some writing in the sky to say, believe in Jesus, some lightning bolt to strike your friend, some miracle to happen? Isn't that God forcing himself on them? God draws people to himself through teaching. So what do we wait for? I asked myself this question, and all I could come up with was was me thinking that I knew when was the best time they should hear about the gospel. It's called the gospel for a reason. It's good news. It's not something that should scare them or disgust them. Very often, though, Many people still find this good news offensive, don't they? They're offended when they're called sinners, that they they need a savior, that their way of living is wrong. And while many are offended by the teaching of the gospel, just as many people find it offensive when the Bible says you're unable to turn to God without divine help. A man falls off a boat into the ocean. There are weeds a bit below and they tie him down. He's drowning. Some friends on the boat shout out to him, you'll be all right, you can get yourself free if you try hard enough, keep going, you're nearly there. Some other friends on the boat say, oh, I'd like to help you, but I have a bit of a problem with conscience, you know, interfering with people's free will, I want to speak to your personal space, I'm, happy to, I'm free, happy to give you some tips on swimming if you'd like, you can take those. These are the sort of statements people make about how Jesus works in salvation. 
Anyone who wants to be saved can be saved. They just need to work at it. Try hard enough. There are limits to even how much, God, how much help God can give a person because he respects their free will. But what do you do when you're drowning because your self-effort isn't enough? What you need is that friend who personally jumps right into the water, overcomes your struggles, gets you free of the weeds, drags you to the shore, gives you CPR, and sends you up again. That's what a rescue is. That's the kind of business God is in. Salvation. A rescue. Jesus isn't concerned with simply gathering a massive crowd, telling them what they want to hear. And even though people started deserting Jesus at the end of all this, he wasn't discouraged because he knew that salvation wasn't ultimately a matter of self-effort. If anything, this really should all come as a great encouragement for us all. It's encouraging for me whenever I preach God's word like, like today. I come up here, I see all your faces, some awake, some not so awake. The sermon wraps up and I wonder, did anything happen? I honestly have no idea. But according to this, I know that God works through his word. If anything happened because I said something, then it's probably not going to last or mean much at all. But if something happened because God was working, then that's a true miracle. Something that will last till eternity. Encourages us all as believers. Because throughout our lives as Christians, we will go through hard times where we question our faith. We struggle, we wonder if God is really there. Plenty of friends, they've fallen away. Is that going to happen to me? If it really is all about our own self-effort, then we probably do need to worry. But this passage tells us that it's not about us. It's about God who is able to rescue. That's where our confidence is. That's where our trust is. Listen to what Jesus says at the center of this passage, the comfort he gives us. John 6, verse 37. Everyone the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those he has given me, but I should raise them up on the last day. Don't spend life wondering if you're one of the ones that the Father has given to Jesus. Simply come to him, hear him, he's done it for you. Don't stand back having some, some philosophical argument about whether it's right or wrong or, or how it works or if it works. The lifesaver is saving you from the rip. Get out of the water and cling on to his hand. Cling on and you can be 100% sure that he's holding on to those that the Father has truly given to Jesus. It is just as impossible for someone the Father has truly given to Jesus to fall away as it is for Jesus to fail to do the Father's will. And it is Jesus' commitment to do the Father's will that qualifies him to be the only bread that gives eternal life. This verse offers incredible security and incredible comfort that you do belong to God. You belong here in his household. But this doesn't just offer comfort to Christians. For those of us here who are, who are exploring, considering, examining Christianity, this should be an encouragement for you as well. It isn't about guessing whether or not you're on God's naughty or nice list. It's about going, do I have a spark? Is there a stirring of belief or faith in my heart? Is there even the smallest, smallest bit of attraction to Jesus? Because if there is, that's worth celebrating. Because if God weren't drawing you today, enabling you, giving you to Jesus right now, do you think you'd even be here today? 
Do you think you'd even have that small bit of attraction? Gives you confidence, doesn't it? Faith does not come as an achievement. It arrives as a gift. And God is offering you that gift today. Friends, by the time we, we get to the end of this chapter, literally most people have turned away from Jesus and not following him anymore. So Jesus goes to his disciples and asks them, do you want to leave too? And John records this brilliant line from Simon Peter. Lord, to whom will we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Let me ask you today, who will you turn to? Where else other than Jesus are you tempted to go? John is telling us that Jesus is the only way to life. To trust him means life, and to reject him means death. It's as simple as that. So as you meet Jesus today, where will you go? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you on our knees asking for help. We see how easily we fall short. We recognize how blind we can be. So please help us to see your son Jesus for who he is. Help us to accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior, the one who is truly able to satisfy and give life. Protect us from chasing things that perish and help us to cling on to your son Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Okay, friends, so remember, I'm a student minister, so... Have mercy on me, but we're going to have some questions, um, and I'll do my best to um, answer them well. Um, so this is the... Oh, yes, good. It's on the screen. Uh, knowing that my friends are in need of Jesus, that they are in need of a rescue from their sin, what are some practical steps that I can take to see them saved? Should I share the gospel with them first, invite them to explain Christianity, or should I act more Christian around them? This is a really helpful, practical question. Um, I think it really depends on um, what your relationship with that friend looks like. We all have different, like, closeness with friends, and, um, know, and we kind of understand where they're at in life. Um, sometimes we feel more comfortable inviting them to a group setting because I feel really inexperienced. And so explain Christianity is actually a good wise step, saying that, hey, I've got a really great event that um, I'd love you to come to. It's really non-threatening. You know, I'm a Christian, and I just really feel like this is a good way to help you understand. It's a really great step to invite them to EC over, explain Christianity over church, because church can be a bit overwhelming sometimes. So that's a good step. Um, should I share the gospel with them first? It also depends where you're at. Sometimes you feel really not sure how to word it, and you, you bumble along. Um, so I do encourage you to talk to, say, your connect group leaders or your connect group members about how you can continue to grow in that area. If you're feeling really confident in that, then it is a great first step to do, to share the gospel. Um, otherwise, explaining Christianity is also a great step. Um, just acting more Christian around them is a pretty spicy one, um, especially, um, especially if you've already tried to share the gospel with them and you just feel like maybe this is all I can really do. Um, I think acting more Christian around them, I think you should always be acting very Christian. It's probably my first comment. Um, so do your best to do that, um, but also have a sort of humble attitude towards them saying that I am a Christian. Um, and if you, if you already let them know that um, and making them clear that being a Christian doesn't mean you'll always be perfect, then that's really great because you are going to make mistakes around friends, especially if you're close to them. Um, so acting more Christian around them, I think do your best. What it means to act more Christian means to either share the gospel or do your best to keep um, presenting Jesus forward to them. Um, one of the great ways I've found if I've already shared the gospel with my friends is um, I usually, usually try to find ways to teach more about Christian ethics or thoughts, about attitudes towards things. 
is a great way to bring it in. That's kind of what it looks like to teach about God, teach about the Christian life. Teaching um, is a great way if I've already made an attempt to share the gospel. Um, a really common one for me is relationships. Marriage is a really great image that we see in the Bible. So having a, a, com, a, that's a good example of where people might talk about, oh, I really like this girl, I really like this guy, and common topic to bring up, oh, well, you know, this is how a Christian would go about things and why, and that brings you a gospel conversation on ramp. Hopefully that. Talk to me more. Talk to Lachlan, he's the mission pastor. Talk to the mission team. They love these type of questions. <laughs> um, if God dictates who is and isn't saved, what role do we play? Does it matter slash make a difference if we share the gospel or not? Okay, um, I knew this type of question would come up. Um, um, I'd say that it is ultimately God who decides, but God has given us all this great privilege to partner with him to, um, to share the gospel. So it does make a difference because God really enjoys and wants to work through his people. Um, and so it really does um, make a difference because uh, I'd say that we don't actually know who is and isn't saved or who truly the Father is giving to the Father. But what we do know is that we, can, we know that there's this good news and we know what's true. And so what we should be doing is just doing our best to go forward with, um, with sharing the gospel and praying for our friends because it really, God loves to partner with his people and that's what we know for sure. But we, what we don't know is who is or isn't in it. And so we shouldn't worry about what we don't know but worry about what we do have control over. It's a good principle to take with life as well. You know, we often want to over-function and, oh, you know, yeah. <laughs> um, can we call people devils if they're up to evil? <laughs> okay. Um, or do we have to love them as image bearers of God and keep our perceptions to ourselves? I'm referring to verse 70. Uh, um, well, this is interesting. Um, uh, I think that... Um, the thing to bear with verse 70 is that I don't think uh, Jesus is necessarily calling Judas out as the devil, but I think the devil is influencing and working through Judas. So I don't think we should necessarily call a person out as the devil, but we can, but we can call out certain things as the work of Satan or as the devil, which we see in Scripture as well, which he acts in this world in ways that we don't necessarily understand. So um, I wouldn't necessarily... I, I like how you call, do we have to love them as our image bearers? We should love people who are perhaps under a slavery to sin or a slave to Satan, um, but we shouldn't necessarily call them out as the devil. Um, but I don't think we should necessarily keep our perceptions to ourselves, um, but we do want to be wise to say, like, oh, you know, Satan's working in you. Um, <laughs> we, we do want to um, just be clear that I don't know if this is wise for these reasons, and it's a gospel conversation to bring in, um, where you say, uh, I don't think what you're doing is wise or what you've done is wise for these reasons, especially if you're a friend with them. If you're not a friend with them, then it's a bit more, you need to be a bit more tactful as well, um, which could look differently. Which, uh, there's lots of potential scenarios that, where that could come up. You said that God doesn't let go of anyone. What are people who seem to have such a genuine pursuit of God, even go to the Bible college and then slip away? Man, this is a, um, a good question. Um, so I tried to um, put a safety net when I gave that comment. Because I said that those that the Father has truly given to Jesus. And so um, we recently did a, well, not recently, a couple years ago, we did a series on Hebrews, which was really great for my own personal growth. Hebrews talks a lot about uh, standing firm and endurance. And Hebrews kind of touches on the topic where, I'm not, I think it's in Hebrews 4, 
um, which talks about um, a lot about people who have fallen away and, and, and um, given up. Um, and I think that I think that these people who have demonstrated a genuine pursuit of God and perhaps even gone to Bible college, um, I wouldn't say that they've necessarily. I wouldn't give up on them. Let's just put it that way. Um, but I, look, I, I don't know if they've been truly given to the Father or not in that context. Um, but at the same time, I wouldn't necessarily assume that they aren't, and I wouldn't give up on them. Um, would be my two cents with this question. And check out Hebrews 4, or Hebrews in general. <laughs> and Hebrews in general. Um, can I eat the Big Mac? Uh, you can have one if you come to me. I, I've got two. I, I've got like a... <laughs> for some reason, Burger King had two for $7 or one for $6. So I was like, okay, I'll just buy two. <laughs> I'm going to eat the other one. <laughs> at Tom now. Eat the other one with, at, at Tom. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, I'm going to pray and we're going to sing some songs together in, uh, in worship of God. Let's pray. Uh, Dear Heavenly Father, I've heard a pretty um, tough passage today, but it's been also a very humbling one. So as you recognize um, the areas of weakness we might have and and the sadness we've seen around us in, in New Zealand and our friends and family, even the crash shooting, uh, we submit all that over to you. you. We know you're in control. Um, but at the same time, may we do all that we can to honor, love you, and worship you and love people around us and above all else be sharing the good news of your son, Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.